giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Siobhan Green, co-founder and CEO of Sanjara, which provides technology solutions for social benefits. Siobhan, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So tell me more about what Sanjara is. Sure. So we started Sanjara like 16 years ago, focusing on the international development community and what they called ICT for D, Information Communications Technology for International Development. And that sort of morphed into looking at good technology products and solutions for organizations in the social benefit space. So internationally and domestically, nonprofits, universities, sometimes entrepreneurs. Most of our clients have some sort of goal beyond making money, although no, everyone needs to pay their bills. But that's really where our focus is. And how do you provide really effective technology solutions that maybe have some sort of social outcome goal? Congratulations on having such a long business. Thank you. We started in 2003, so you beat us by a year, but... <laughs> How have things changed over the 16 years? I mean, certainly the technology has changed a lot. What you can mm -hmm. do has changed a lot. When we started, a lot of what we were doing was really a lot of basic HTML and content editing, basic databases. And then, of course, as content management systems came along, then that got replaced. A lot of the hype of the dot-com boom started actually being delivered over the last 16 years. Mm -hmm. And for us, the most important thing actually was we're calling the digitization of the world, right? Everything has been moved out of cutting-edge technologies to much more mainstream approaches. So even the smallest nonprofits in developing countries like Uganda and Kenya and Zimbabwe will have mobile phones, will be able to record things easily, will be able to access the internet. Now, they still have challenges. They still have needs that need to be addressed. But everywhere I go, people have a Gmail account or you know how to access things online. So that's really changed a lot in terms of what people can do. There's a lot more free tools out there as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, everyone's using, again, Gmail. You know, why would I spend money for my own email system when I can just get a free one? You know, why would I create an online discussion board when I can just have Facebook group? And then, of course, all the questions about digital privacy and how this data is going to be used have really changed in the last couple of years, as well as just expectations. People no longer want to wait two weeks to get um, a kit delivered. They want it now because Amazon Prime is what they're referring right. to. So we've just seen a tremendous amount of changes uh, across the entire world. And of course, it affects our particular client base. So what were you doing before that led you to co-found Sanjara? So I actually call myself an accidental entrepreneur. Um, mm -hmm. I was always interested in international development. My mom worked for UNICEF when I was a kid. So I kind of was raised on three cents a day will save a starving child and was always very interested in trying to work on really difficult problems. But I was also the kind of person who figured out how the printers worked at my office. I remember figuring out mail merge and <laughs> all these other, you know, interesting technology tools. But even though I had a background in international affairs and history, my parents parents forgot their first computer when I think I was 10 years old and my mom put me to work doing data entry for her Christmas card list. I always enjoyed computers, always was using them kind of a little bit more on the cutting edge than most people around me. I ended up getting married to uh, a software developer. And from that, I would sort of say, teach me how to do a database, teach me how to build things in HTML. 
And, you know, he would teach me so he wouldn't have to do it for me. And then I started working for nonprofits where, again, I would see the incredible value of these digital tools. At one point, I was working with a team in Mali. And in order for us to co-write a document, this was back in like 99, 2000, you know, even if you had like a <laughs> one of those floppy disks, right. you would literally have to drive it to their offices 45 minutes away because there was no internet. And it would take you days to do things that really shouldn't take you that long. So we started doing things with the internet just to kind of overcome some of those barriers. And I would get frustrated at not being able to do it more effectively. So when we had our first child, uh, my husband and I, I quit the day job because I wanted to freelance, work from home, but at the same time wanted to still be able to do interesting stuff and found myself getting hired by nonprofits because I was good with computers, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. and um, had taught myself some PHP, some MySQL, a lot of HTML, but also was familiar enough with the field so that I could translate from engineering speak into English. <laughs> so I remember writing like one pagers on spectrum analysis and mm -hmm. uh, ICT regulations and sort of why we should care about these things. And then over time, we got enough work where I couldn't do the heavy lifting in terms of the software. So I'd bring Andy in. After a while, we got enough work where he could quit the day job. And then after a while, we got enough work, we had to start hiring staff. So here we are 16 years later. And how big are you now in terms of staff? We have six full-time staff here in the United States. We have three staff in Uganda, and we have a host of consultants that we bring on, right. kind of ramp up and ramp down as we need to. At our high point, we've been at 15, and then, you know, we kind of wax and wane based on mm -hmm. what the needs are. Well, when it comes to those needs, you know, how do you get customers and how do you manage the process of what I assume is sometimes pretty complex contracting and mm -hmm. procurement processes? So I would say... Our clients come from a variety of sources. Uh, mm -hmm. We do a lot of U.S. government contracting. USAID is one of our major sources for clients. And we're very plugged into the community of people who serve USAID, both the nonprofits and the for-profits. And so oftentimes people will come to us and say, we need help on building this thing. Sometimes what they've already promised and they don't know how to do it. But more often than not, they'll come to us in the proposal stage and say, we want you to be the technology partner. So we'll come in and say, okay, this need requires a custom database or you know what, there's an off the shelf solution that would do a great job. We also reach out, make people aware of what we offer uh, through various venues. Um, I actually offer a free workshop on the ethics around data, basically to clients, potential clients. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a framework for non-technical people on how to assess what data you need and then how to assess the benefits from that data and also potential risks. Understanding that you know now we're in this world where we don't know what happens to the data that we're collecting. We don't want to put anyone's harm's way. So mm -hmm. it kind of gives that framework to have people talk about it. And what I find is that, you know, doing those thought leadership type presentations, it's a great way for people to say, oh my God, I wish I'd known you were there, you know, three months ago or three years ago, but hey, can you come and help us out with this? And a lot of it's word of mouth. A lot of it is the network and um, every once in a while, we'll see an RFP. We also work with the World Bank and the UN, and so mm -hmm. we'll follow up on proposals with them. But it's more the network than anything else. And do you do those proposals yourself in-house? Yes. We have tried using some outsourcing services, but I think because our clientele is pretty niche, mm -hmm. it really 
doesn't work very well without a lot of training. I actually still lead most of the proposal development. We've had other staff along the way who've helped. Obviously, we have a lot of people helping out with the proposals, but I do most of them. Is that onerous? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I have actually four proposals that technically are supposed to go out today, but... uh, Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, it's what happens when you're the owner of the company. Um, I have to say, though, the thing, too, to keep in mind is that when you're dealing with U.S. government contracts, the lift on those is unbelievable. Yeah. The estimate is it costs around $35,000 to put together one of these major U.S. government contracts. Now, when we're going after those contracts, the contracts themselves are for $20 million or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not talking, you know, $20,000 contract. Right. So we have smaller ones. We do a lot of really rapid response contracts. Like I've got one where it's a maintenance contract for a website that we built for a client. They decided to pull their maintenance in-house. And now a couple of years down the line, they said, you know what, this is not something we want to do anymore. You know, the people who are maintaining it have left. We'd rather outsource it to you. Give me a quote. So, you know, that's a very small contract and I'm just waiting on one person to get back to me to get that out today. One of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, we have things when we're putting together a new idea or someone's coming to us with an idea or coming to you with an idea for something that they want to accomplish internal to their organization, how familiar are they with things like accessibility requirements of what they're going to do? Or is that also new territory for them? That's such a great question because oftentimes a lot of what we do is client education. Mm -hmm. The area actually where I find I'm doing the most education these days is on data protection especially for clients who potentially have European customers Mm -hmm. and really emphasizing to them that they don't want to skimp on this. We also provide PCI compliance support for clients who have credit card processing. My husband's a CISSP, which you know, really helps with our data protection. And we have two staff who are getting their degrees in cybersecurity. What's interesting is that people will give lip service to giving data protection, but they don't really understand what the costs are going to be associated Mm -hmm. with it. So just as an example, I had a client the other day who has customers, who has data subjects in his database who are from Europe. And I said to him, look, your site is not GDPR compliant right now. You need to be GDPR compliant or else you're going to be in trouble. And he said, oh, well, you know, that's really not an emphasis for us right now. And I'm going, (laughs) do you know that 4% of your total world revenue could possibly be at risk? And that's when he stood up and said, oh. And I said, look, it doesn't really have to be a huge amount of work. I mean, we will do an assessment of your site. We will make sure that we understand what data is being collected. And then we'll help you create the privacy policy in terms of use and so forth, and maybe break out some of your underlying data structures to make it easy to be compliant. But you got to pay attention to this or else you're going to get in trouble. But it's hard sometimes because you don't always want to come across as the bad cop. Like, oh, you're a bad person. You know, you're not being ethical. You're not being safe. At the same time, the push to underinvest in technology is always there. And trying to gently educate is, I think, just an ongoing issue. In general, uh, do you have an opinion about how GDPR is going so far? Specifically in terms of Europe, I don't because most of our clients are not in Europe. Uh, But what I am finding is, so we do a lot of work, for example, in Africa. As I mentioned, Mm -hmm. we have this small office there. What's happening is, just like HIPAA in the United States, a lot of organizations are taking GDPR as how they manage data privacy. 
Right. You know, it's kind of the gold standard. And a lot of countries are actually copying and pasting the GDPR standard and sort of doing a search and replace on Europe to Sierra Leone or whatever. And even though they may not have the infrastructure to support it, you know, those at least are the the laws and the regulations. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like, well, if you're compliant with GDPR, then you're probably going to meet our standards. That's what I'm seeing more than anything else. A lot of confusion about GDPR, about what it means and what you have to do and how far reaching it is. And again, I find in general with people is that there's sort of this binary towards the risk, right? Either there's a hundred percent risk or there's zero risk and getting people to say, yeah, there's a little bit here, like just a little bit, Uh, especially in the NGO community where they also will sometimes get funding from European donors. Like I'll have people say to me, oh, well, we're a US organization. We don't have to be compliant. Like, well, did you get any money from say DFID or from the EU or from, you know, the Germans? They're like, well, yeah. So did you read the terms of your contract? Did they say mm-hmm. anything about GDPR compliance in there? Oh, you might want to look into that. And then recognize that oftentimes the systems that these organizations have in terms of their data management, they're not well organized. Right. That's for me the biggest hindrance is like, I, you know, they don't even know what they have. I think so much in technology happens relatively organically, happens quickly. Even in the most sort of technology forward organizations, there's tendency to try to minimize technology expense. And I can't imagine that in social benefit organizations, it's it's any different. And yes. funding constraints probably make it even worse. Absolutely. I mean, I think in general, there's always a rush to reduce expenses, periods, which makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. So unless something's directly tied to revenue, people tend to say, well, can we get away with not having this? You know, either directly tied to revenue or if there's some sort of credible risk or compliance. Those are the things that really get people's attention. What's interesting, though, is... So we've had conversations with clients. We do work with for-profits, but mainly work with nonprofits. We had one nonprofit where they needed to make some changes to their online selling system. This is now several years ago. And Mm -hmm. they asked us to put together a quote for them for that. So we did. And they came back. This is way too expensive. And I said, well, the system that you're using to sell widgets made you $1.5 million last year. We're putting together a budget for you of like about $50,000 to address some legal and kind of donor funding requirements. You're going to jeopardize $1.5 million of revenue for $50,000 of expense. And they ended up saying, no, we don't want to go with your solution. We want to go with this other solution. They did. And their revenue went from $1.5 million to Mm $600,000 in one year. And so recently we've had similar conversations, you know, about, again, additional changes. And they were like, well, you know, we don't want to invest it. And I said, well, just remember last time. Right. And they were like, oh, I said, you know, penny wise, pound foolish. What I find really helps is if we can tie the technology investment to a savings. So we had another client where they went from an off-the-shelf solution that didn't really work for them to a custom solution we built custom-made for them. But one of the things we did was we actually got metrics for how much revenue they'd made with the previous system and how much expense there was. And then we were able, after six months of deployment, to say, you've already made back the money you invested in us. That's really powerful when you can do that. Yep. And and what's great is, too, is we were able to provide that to the director who then took that to the board of directors who had a couple of people like, we're we're wasteful and, you know, spending on custom software, we should just be hacking together a WordPress site. And she said, well, let's look at the numbers. And they were like, oh, okay, we're done. Yeah. 
So you mentioned one of the things that's changed over the last 16 years is just how integrated technology is into society. Mm-hmm. That everyone, well, not quite everyone, but almost everyone literally has a smartphone. So it seems to me like we are transitioning from just like how we're going to get to the point where we're at now in mm-hmm. terms of technology and more into, okay, now that we're here, what are the challenges that come about where all data, where everyone, when the entire world is online and all of our data is there? And and these seem to be the challenges that face us now and mm-hmm. will be growing in the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things we're realizing is how much security through obscurity we really did have. Yeah. And how now the interconnectedness of data sets, we're not able to compartmentalize as much as we used to be able to. So one of the populations we tend to work with a lot is the LGBTQI community. And especially in places like Africa, where it is literally illegal to be homosexual. One of the issues is they don't have a safe place to have conversations. So for example, we were talking to this one guy in a West African country about how they were really looking for support from us and we were trying to get funding to do that. And unfortunately it didn't work out, but um, they'd had a Facebook group. And, you know, again, these are, these are folks in, in, in West Africa and Mali and they were average people, right? We're not talking about, you know, the elite, the very wealthy, but they did have uh, phones, you know, either cheap smartphones or even feature phones where they could text messages to Facebook and WhatsApp. And they were using these tools The problem what they were having was that they would create these communities that would then get infiltrated and then people would be, have their lives put at risk. And they were trying to figure out how do we balance between the privacy that we need, but also needing to know who we're talking to. And especially in a situation where people are highly closeted because of physical safety concerns, that digital identity piece becomes even more critical. And the fact that you can then tie your national ID number to say your health records. Well, that may seem great in terms of case management and you know payment and so forth, but what if you're HIV positive? What if you're a sex worker? Right. What if you're living in a country that's not entirely democratic? And, you know, oh, and by the way, your national ID number has a biometric associated with it. In India, they've been using Athar. I think they've got over a billion records in there right now to create a national ID system. And again, it uses fingerprints and iris scans, but it also ties to your your name and then I think some yep. other contact information. Because your name contains cast information, your last name generally um, says your cast, yep. you're physically connecting your biometric and immutable <laughs> identification to your cast. So is somebody even calling it a digital yellow star? We don't know how this is going to be used, but we do know from history that this stuff tends to follow patterns of power. And for me, that's one of the most interesting topics about all this, because we tend to think of technology as being amoral or being like, you know, social good. And it can be. It's been amazing in terms of allowing access to information and access to markets and to sellers and so forth. But we have to recognize the fact that the technology is always in the hands of the people who are in power. And it will follow those patterns of power unless we actively mitigate against it. And so it's really easy to get into a situation where we're solving one problem and causing a few other ones in ways that we haven't anticipated because we've never been here before in terms of this data. We've, I mean, we don't really have a good example of how to manage all of this. Mm-hmm. The other thing too that I want to say is that there's, you know, 
we talked about kind of what people could misuse data for in terms of, you know, malicious actors. But there's also a lot of what could happen with the data when we don't do a good job of managing it. You know, we could lose it. It could be incomplete. It could not be what we want it to be. But we're sort of making a lot of assumptions that if it's digital, it's good. If it's digital, it means that it's valuable and it's something that we can trust. But you know as well as I do that the data is only as good as the input into it and the management right. of it. Yep. You know, garbage in, garbage out. And so it's possible to completely lose entire communities because they're just not as online as, say, other communities. And then when we're doing our analysis about, well, what do our populations need? Well, if we, we don't know what we don't know. So it's something we all have to be aware of that we don't have 100% penetration. We don't have 100% inclusion. We're finding more and more self-censorship among certain populations, like the LGBTQI populations, because they're worried about their privacy. But we're also finding, you know, people don't get involved. Young women in Bangladesh, for example, have stopped getting involved in social media because of fears of backlash from their families and from members of their community that they would put them at risk for exploitation and bullying. So again, it's something for us to really wrestle with to say, hang on a second, this technology is being used to reinforce existing inequality. Right. How do we handle that? I think about these problems in sort of two mindsets and maybe maybe they're linked, but it's sort of like the big picture and then the individual person. Cause you know, I'm a developer and designer and I, mm -hmm. so I could be asked to work on something. How do I manage myself and my responsibility and, and making sure that I don't do something that's actively harmful. And then the bigger picture of how do we do it as organizations and, and the world. Mm -hmm. Do you have any way that you, sort of reconcile those two levels in your mind or tips for what individuals might do? Well, I think we're all making it up as we go along to a certain extent. <laughs> so, you know, don't, if I come back and, you know, five years, look at this and I might go, oh, that was a terrible idea. I think the thing is you're, you're right. I mean, looking at it from kind of a bigger picture, organizational infrastructure, societal standpoint, but also as an individual, you know, me, I've really been a lot more thoughtful on things like having the Echoes and the Alexas in my house because I'm nervous about having something record me all the time without being, being aware of it. I'm also more aware of digital protection laws and I'm just more aware of what's happening in the world in terms of how is this technology being used. Because it's not just my data, it's also, that's the other thing too, also the fact that we're not just dealing with our own data. You heard that story about the the genetic database that was used to track down that serial killer in California. You hear about this? No, I don't think I did hear about this. This is really, really kind of big brother. He's creepy. So there was this unsolved case in California in the 1970s or 80s or so, and they had some DNA evidence, but of course they didn't have anyone to match it to, but they found that there was a marker in the DNA that was sort of unusual and was hereditary. So somebody within the team went to one of these open source genetic databases and looked for other people with the same genetic marker and then were able to narrow down kind of suspect lists based on location and, and other factors. And they basically found a couple of people who were directly related to one of the major suspects. And then from that, they were able to do more investigation and from then they were able to arrest the person. So it wasn't that the suspect donated his DNA. Right like an aunt did, <laughs> you know, right. to find out how, you know, what percentage of French she was, but it also affects people who she's related to. 
Right. Like, oh, that's really kind of weird and really strange. So those are the things I kind of think about. I'm like, oh, how am I, you know, if I post pictures of my kids on Facebook, what happens in 15 years when they're grownups? Yeah. How do yep. I impact them? So that's the other thing too that I'm kind of always going, oh God, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that when they were babies. From an organizational level, we do try to put in some policies. I think the biggest thing I try to do is I try to raise these issues to say, let's talk about them. There's no easy solutions, unfortunately. I wish there were. Right. And and again, I don't want to turn it into let's all live in an island with tinfoil hats on our head, which is very easy to get to. You know, this technology is here and there's no way to opt out of it. We just need to be aware of our responsibilities. Like, are we adding to the problem or are we adding to the solution? And we can keep talking about it. And when we know better, we do better. You mentioned how you you sort of set some guidelines as an organization and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's what I've found as well. Like, there are some things that are very obvious, but then there is a lot of gray area. Mm-hmm. And the only way to resolve that that I found as an organization, you can't make a rule about everything. So you sort of have to talk through it and be willing to have open conversations about, yeah. okay, do we want to be involved in this? Absolutely. How might we respond to this problem? Well, I'll give you an example of this, actually. So we there was a bid that came out a couple of years ago. It was funded by a donor and they wanted drone technology, GIS mapping in a particular country. And uh, we actually had a partner in that country who was very, very good at that particular technology. So we thought, oh, this is great. Let's go after this. And I had one of my team, you know, start doing some investigation. And she came back to me after a couple of days and she said, you know, I'm really not feeling comfortable about this. And I was like, oh, do you think we can't do the work? She said, no, no, no we could do the work. We could easily do the work. We could make a profit on it. She said, my worry is that the way they described it in the RFP was this was going to help food security and provide more information you know, on these different key indicators. She said, but that's crap. I'm like, what mm. do you mean? She said, well, she, she was actually happened to be an expert in food security. And she said, I know that's crap because I know that this data already exists. I know where it exists. And I was able to actually do a little digging and find it. So why do they really want these maps? Mm-hmm. It's kind of a coincidence, don't you think, that the part of the country where these maps are going to take place happens to be right next to the border where there's a conflict on the other side. It's like, oh, she said, I really, the, the, when I dig into the specs, it makes me think that actually they don't want this for food security. They really want this for border control and conflict management. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, and, and I don't have a problem with that either. That's a great goal. But why didn't they say that? Right, right. And she said, the fact that they didn't say that makes me very, very wary to get involved with this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know what? I'm with you. And the thing is, I got other priorities. I got other things. You know, I got other proposals we could be doing. We've got other pot- potential. Why delve into something that has murky <laughs> prospects when I got other things that are a lot clearer, right? And so we decided to no-go it. And, you know, to the disappointment of our partner in the country, they're like, oh, but this is great. And so if you want to go after it, that's great. We did share with them, though, our concerns And the guy kind of was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. Mm -hmm. And so I think it really behooves all of us as an organization to just do that little bit of critical thinking about like, how is this going to be used? You know, first of all, do I trust the people who are giving me the money to do it, that they're going to be doing the right thing with it? Hopefully the answer is yes. But also, you know, could there be impact beyond the immediate application that that we can see? And are people thinking about it? And are they welcoming us to say, hey, just FYI? You might want to think about this. I find that even if you're not 
you know, specifically set out to do good, even if you just want to have the kind of organization that has a strong culture. Mm -hmm. But more concretely, we care a lot at ThoughtBot about the ethics and that the things we create deserve to exist. Mm -hmm. You know, what defines culture and who you are as an organization is oftentimes just as much what you decide not to do, what you don't do, as the things that you actually do. Oh, that is so perfect. Yes. I mean, we we really think about the kinds of work that we do. I mean, you know, from it could be, you know, we don't work with this client. We don't want to do this type of work. But it could be things like, you know what? We're not going to promise what we can't deliver on. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of profit margin are we willing to go after for certain types of projects? You know, I'm not in this for it to be a charity. I want to make money on it. But I might be a little bit more willing to cut a few percentage points off the profit margin for an organization that I think really is worthwhile. Right. These are the types of things that address every day in the course of business. I do find that it also helps staff where we love the work that we do. We love the technology. I mean, we really enjoy working with technology, but it also gives you something else to know that what you're doing kind of has a bigger impact, you know, other than just making someone else rich. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't have a problem with making people rich, but I want to make sure that it's also maybe also for the greater good. Do you travel a lot in your work? Yes. Yes, I do. I was actually gone for a month in November. I was in Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Uganda. And then I'm going to be going back to Uganda in April. Well, I assume you like travel then. I do. <laughs> <laughs> when you are traveling to all these places, is there something that surprises you? So I've been doing a lot of travel the last few years. I was sort of grounded for about 10 years when my kids were little. My husband was like, please don't go anywhere when they're mm-hmm. too small. And then when they got to an age where they could actually feed themselves, we said, okay, maybe I can start traveling again. So it was nice to have that gap because I'd done a lot of traveling into developing countries before my kids. So seeing kind of a 10-year gap in what had happened was really interesting. The types of things that surprised me are... First of all, how ubiquitous things are, uh, certainly mm-hmm. news. I swear, every country I go to these days, the first question they say is, what the hell is going on with your president? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I really, <laughs> like, oh, that's a long conversation. But they might ask me about pop stars and that type of thing. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. But also how technology is everywhere, but it's also not everywhere. So, you know, we sort of assume that we're going to be able to have 4G on our phones anywhere. I mean, maybe if we're in a rural part of the country, it's kind of spotty. But that's not true in a lot of places. You can get 4G, but then it will just disappear. I was in Malawi mm-hmm. in March, and I had this weird... They First of all, sold 4G, didn't actually exist anywhere in the country. So we only had 3G or maybe Edge, and then it would sort of cycle. And living in a world where you just don't have constant access to the internet, you really have to adapt your work. <laughs> you just have to sort of adapt everything. Like, I can't right. get my, my Facebook feed. And then you have to worry about power. So I think the thing too is that the internet has and technology has done a lot to overcome some barriers, but there's some real barriers that still are hard and fast that, that people have not overcome. Like you can't have, for example, a stable electronic medical record system if you don't have stable power and you don't have stable internet. Right. Because what happens is if you're sitting in a clinic and you're supposed to be serving patients and all of your records are online and then the power goes out for two days, you just don't get to serve patients. And so then, of course, what happens is, and I actually saw this in Zimbabwe where they had rolled out an EMR, it went offline for a day and the internet went out. The power was on, but the internet went out. And so they moved back to their paper records and they were like putting all their paper records, you know, doing everything paper records and serving clients and it was great. 
And then I said to them, okay, so what's your plan for taking the day's worth of data and putting it back into the EMR? And they all kind of looked at me and they're like, <laughs> why would we do that? I'm like, but you're using the EMR to generate your end of month reports. <laughs> yep. They're like, oh. So the other thing too that I guess that surprises me or maybe not is that you have incredible technology capacity in a lot of these countries. A lot of people think, oh, there's no programmers and developers and stuff. That's not true. Right. I, every country I've been to, and I've been to a lot in Africa, there are incredible programmers, software developers, technologists. There's just not enough of them. And then the gap in terms of sort of the everyday people in terms of what their technology capacity is, is pretty low. You know, they have their mm -hmm. phones and they can do stuff on Facebook, but some of the integration of technology into the daily life is not there because they haven't grown up with it like we have. Yeah. And so that's where I see a lot of the need, just increasing the numbers and increasing that, that capacity with people. I mean, what I love about it is uh, now using WhatsApp, God, I love WhatsApp and other types of digital channels. I, there's really no reason for me to be out of contact. Yeah. The only time I was really out of contact was when I was in a refugee camp in Zambia where there was literally no internet but they were actually building a cell tower there. And what was really crazy, this was a refugee camp of 12,000 people coming over from DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, into Northern Zambia. And even though there was no internet, you could actually buy Airtel scratch off airtime. Mm -hmm. I took pictures <laughs> of like an Airtel <laughs> little shop that was like, you know, a couple of tables and, you know, a roof and so forth put together. There was no electricity in this entire refugee camp, seven kilometers long. And there were solar panel chargers. And I could see people on their phones. I'm like, you have no internet. How There's no cell coverage. How are you doing this? They would travel the two, three kilometers away to the next village where there was. And then they would come back again. Wow. And these are refugees. These are people who left their country with like nothing. And yet six months after they've been there, now they've got their phones, they've got their airtel, and they're building a cell tower. And I just find it astonishing. I just love seeing how people just will make do and figure things mm -hmm. out. It's fascinating. Well, Shabon, thank you very much for joining me and sharing your perspective. If people want to find out more about Sanjara or follow along with you online, where's the best places for them to do that? So I would say start with uh, our website, www.sonjara.com. I'm on Twitter at Siobhan Green, S-I-O-B-H-A-N-G-R-E-E-N, -E -E just like the color. And you can always drop me an email at sio at sanjara.com. If anyone's interested in this workshop on the ethics of data, I give it as pro bono, either webinars for out people outside of the DC area or in person in DC. And you can contact me there and let me know. I also do pro bono one hour consultations where people say, I've got a cool and crazy idea and I know technology is somehow the solution, but I have no idea what that's going to look like, uh, especially if it's dealing with social benefit, developing countries, please let me know. I learned so much from those sessions. Wonderful. You can find all of that in the show notes at giantrobots.fm. You can subscribe to the show as well at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.